0: Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org postscript.
1: Howdy. Howdy. It's good to see you guys. Uh, if you have a Bible, we are in Ephesians chapter four. And I want to read to you a couple of verses. Uh, we'll pray and then jump in. If you don't have a Bible, there's folks walking down the aisles with some you can uh, take with you. Uh, and uh, I want to read Ephesians 4, starting in verse 15. We'll pray and then jump in together. <clears throat> Ephesians 4 15 uh, says this Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let me pray for us. Lord, I want to thank you for this moment right here to talk about your word together. And Lord, I just want to ask you, rescue us from just a mundane listening to some guy up front. Just save us from from a perfunctory experience here. Lord, what we need is we need the voice of God to speak into our relationships, into how we treat each other. And so, Lord, I just, looking at this text again, the potential, God, I'm asking for you to, to let this word sink into us and revolutionize how we speak to one another, how we treat our fellow human beings and, uh, and that families could shift and communities could shift and a culture could shift because of how we treat one another. And I'm asking for something much bigger than I can create. And so we're talking to you. And I just want to ask you guys here, if you're willing, to take a moment and ask him, say, Lord, please teach me today. And then if you would, please pray for me that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful Well, Father, we love you, and we trust you. Use this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we talked about unity, the fact that God is at work reconciling humanity to himself, taking former enemies and making them friends of God, and then not only reconciling us with himself, but reconciling us with one another. That in Jesus Christ, formerly hostile parties become friends out of the grace of God. So last week was about unity. So naturally, as we pick back up today, needs to be about conflict. Because wherever two or more are gathered, there will be drama. It's just true. That's the human experience that when we rub up against each other, there's friction and you can't escape it. So some of you in your home, you live with a spouse or a roommate or someone that refuses to do the dishes or clean, and you look around and say, how can someone stand such filthy living conditions and you can't understand it and there's conflict? Or some of you work with coworkers that you have to do group projects together and they refuse to carry their own weight. And you say, how can you not have enough self-respect to get your work done that I've got to carry your load for you? And you have a coworker you have conflict with. Or others of you, you have a spouse or a roommate that's constantly nagging you about cleaning up and you're like, why can't they just relax? What's their deal? Or you have coworkers that seem wound up so tight and always wanna work, work, work and won't just chill, right? And either way, there's conflict. Or you have family members that have strong political views but weak social skills and uh, it's it's getting complicated. Or you've got a boss that's drunk with power and difficult to deal with. Or you have people that work for you that won't do what you tell them to do. But in all of our relationships, socially, we run into conflict. And so we got to figure out how do we deal with it well because it's coming. And there's two very primal, primary responses when we run into conflict that every person does. We do one of these two. Number one, the easiest is to avoid. We just try to avoid it. It's the flight reflex. Let me get out of there. So I'm driving home, and I see that roommate's car in the driveway that I don't really want to deal with, and I just keep driving and go sit at Starbucks for a few hours, right? Or others, if you be honest, you get that text from somebody at work or some friend or someone from the church that's asking you to do something, asking you to make a decision, hey, I need this from you, and you go, I'm just going to pretend I didn't see that, right? And you kind of have to go on social media timeout for a few hours because they can't say, hey, I saw you Instagramming. Why didn't you text me back? They're like, uh... The text part was broken? It doesn't, that's not going to work. So you just kind of stay off your phone, right? And we just avoid conflict, avoid that person, avoid the situation. You walk into work and suddenly something's really interesting on your phone so you won't have to make eye contact with that person. We're so good at avoiding. There's businesses now. There's one called the Breakup Shop. And it's a real business where you can hire these people to break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend for you. And for $10, they will text that person to tell them the relationship's over. For $20, they'll send them a letter. For $30, they'll call them and let them know that the dream is dead. But no matter what way they choose, they all get a a discount at the breakup shop store. You know, things like DVDs of the notebook or uh, chocolate chip cookies or things to help you deal with the pain. But that's where our culture is. Today, where, man, we just want to avoid the situation. And many of us have felt that, where we feel somebody blowing us off online. They never got back to our text, never got back to our email. We feel how much that hurts. We don't like people doing that. But we all do it. We all do it. We want to avoid conflict. Or the other response, if we're not avoiders, is to attack. If I feel like someone's angry at me, i got to hit first, right, to get my shot in before they come at me. It's the fight Reflex that if I feel like someone's upset at me, I'm coming back twice as hard at them. And I thought of all the illustrations of this I could say, but the truth is I don't even want to. I mean, the world is so filled with almost everything you read online right now, every reaction to whatever's happening in the news from all different parties. I spent the last week and a half just looking online at the responses to every new tragedy. And from literally every corner, every political party, every different group, I read the most ignorant, hateful responses to other people. Funerals haven't even happened yet. And people are saying the ugliest things to one another online. People just say, man, I'm going to hit the other party back. I'm going to hit the other back. We've gotten great at attacking one another. And the truth is, these are primal human responses. We've been fight or flight, avoid or attack since the beginning of humanity. That's the way we roll. But we've hit a new intensity with this advent of technology. Now I can ignore you in unprecedented ways. It used to be, ladies, if a guy asked you out and you didn't want to go with him, he was going to ask you to your face, right? And so you couldn't avoid him. You couldn't go. Because <laughs> even then you're communicating. Now I just, I just never get back to you because you're just some characters on a screen so I can avoid you. Psychological effect is the same for them, but I don't have to look at the pain on their face so it's easier for me or we attack online because I'm not dealing with a real person. I read an article from a sports writer who said, you know, for years I I get paid to write commentary on sports and people disagree with me all the time. No, that person should have started. No, I think that person's the best, whatever. And he said, but the interesting thing now is people don't respond with, I disagree with your decision. I think that player is better than that player. Now they respond by saying, I hate you. You're retarded. You should kill yourself. And he said, so I got on the phone and called some of these people. He said, what I found were some of the most normal people out there. And I asked them, then why did you tell me you disagree with who I think the starting lineup should be? You think I should die? And they said, I didn't think about you being a real person. I just saw a comment and wrote it back, and I didn't really even pause to think about how that makes you feel. And that's the culture we're raising our children in. I can attack you, and I'm spared the social cues of watching the pain on your face or hearing the crowd's reaction that maybe that was across the line. And so we're getting in a culture now where you see an increase of oversensitivity and insensitivity at the same time. You see in our culture this fascinating mix of we are overly sensitive when someone comes at me, but we are insensitive in our response to others. An oversensitivity and insensitivity at the same time. One of the most famous examples of it is the one that's kind of become ubiquitous. It was one of the first kind of Warning signs you give to people of be careful what you put out online. It was the girl that went to fly to Africa, and before she flew, she tweeted out, I'm headed to Africa. I hope I don't get AIDS. Oh, whoops, never mind. I'm white. I can't. And that was an awful thing to say, a racist comment to make. And she came back and said later, um, I was trying to make fun of that perspective of white privilege, but irony can't get picked up on a tweet. I don't know. At best, it was an uh, ill-advised decision to put that out to the world. At worst, it was really racist and inappropriate. But what was fascinating to watch, and sociologists have studied, is what happened next. Because she tweeted that and then got on the plane. and Her plane didn't have Wi-Fi, so for the next several hours, better part of a day, she didn't know what was going on. But what happened was she thought she was sending a message to her friends, but people picked it up, began to put it out all over online of look at how horrible this person is. Look at what a nightmare this human being is. Look at what a terrible this person thing is. Something should happen to her. She should be punished. She should whatever. And so by the time she landed, the press was waiting there for her. And thousands of people were responding, I can't wait to see that girl's face when she figures out what happened because when she landed, her friend said, you need to check what's happening online because her company had not just fired her, her company had issued a statement distancing from her. And thousands upon thousands of people had commented to her about what a nightmare and what a horrible human being she was. But what was interesting, that sociologists noticed, was the glee people took in seeing her destruction. You didn't see a torrent of conversation online of we should really engage her in a dialogue about how that's not appropriate. She needs to understand how hurtful that sentence is. Things like that weren't being said. Things that were being said were things like, I hope you get gang raped and get AIDS when you land so you'll know what it feels like. But here was the fascinating thing. The guy who wrote that, and that was a quote, no one reprimanded him in the stream that it's okay to speak with that level of ugliness if it's against someone you think's offended you. So we're overly sensitive when someone offends me, but that gives me the right to hit you back much harder. I hope you get gang raped. Can we agree that's an inappropriate, maybe even more inappropriate response? But no reprimand for him. And so we're overly sensitive, and it's made us insensitive to other people. Why? Because I think we just love us. I think that's why. We love ourselves, and we don't care about other people. And so dialogue is not really happening much in our country today. You saw it recently at Yale, where 13 administrators put out a list to Yale students of what kinds of Halloween outfits would be appropriate or inappropriate culturally. And one of the professors at Yale said, Do we really want to live in a society where you college students, adults, are being dictated to you what you can wear for Halloween? Yes, there are outfits you shouldn't wear that would be offensive, but can we trust one another as a dialogue to say, hey, when you wear that, I don't really like that for these reasons. That brings up this issue. Can we dialogue as a community about how to take care of one another? A mob form to picket that woman and demand that she be fired, and she no longer works at Yale. And as her husband came out and said she wasn't trying to pick a fight, she was trying to open up a dialogue, you can watch the video of him being shouted down and people yelling, you don't deserve to be listened to. And that's the culture we live in today. That's America today. And my concern is I remember in seminary studying genocide, Germany during World War II, Cambodia, Rwanda, when one group tried to exterminate the other group. And you can watch how it happens in a culture. How do you get there? It starts with classifications. There's an us and there's a them. And then you get symbolization. The us's look like this. These are our symbols. The them's were these. And then there's the dehumanization. Those people, I can't believe someone would believe that. I can't believe someone would think that. I can't believe someone would act like that. And we begin to dehumanize them. And then a polarization happens where we dehumanize. They're monsters. They're animals. You can't believe that and be a civil human being. And as that happens in increasing polarization, finally it moves to extermination. Because if I can dehumanize you, I can be inhumane to you. And we've seen that over and over again in the culture. And I went on CNN this morning, and every single lead story on CNN was about one of us killing one of us. Every single one. So you say, this can't happen in this culture. It can't. How far has communication broken down that the solving it is not, let's dialogue to reach understanding. It's, I must destroy you. That's where we've come. And it can't be this way. It can't be this way. There has to be a better way. And there is a better way. And Ephesians 2 said, when we were enemies of God, God did not destroy us, though he had every right. He didn't feel offended. He was offended by us. But Jesus Christ came to us while we were enemies, and he sacrificed for us all of his life. Why? To take the enemies of God and make us friends of God, make us family of God, that Jesus Christ came to reconcile God and humanity. And in that reconciliation, it says he broke down the dividing wall of hostility horizontally as well. That now people from different political parties, social backgrounds, all different places are knit together as one in the body of Jesus Christ. That when we come to Christ, we're reconciled to God and we are reconciled to one another. And he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That we can tell people, you can go from enemy of God to friend. And now those of us who used to be disparate parties can be made one as well. So the Christian enters into an increasingly hostile culture with three assumptions. Assumption number one is that there's a commonality with all of humanity. That when I look into the face of another human being, I see someone made in the image of my God. So if you and I disagree on everything under the sun, I can still treat you with dignity and kindness. Why? Because you're made in the image of my God who loves me and died for me. And if you are a Christian Even if you're a Christian from a very different background, I can love you because you're not just in the image of my God, you're my brother and you're my sister because he took the two of us and put us in one body. We're family. So whenever I see any human being, no matter what issues may divide us, I see a commonality to us across any kind of divide. We are fellow human beings or we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But even though I see that beauty in you, I also see brokenness in you. So I see our commonality, but I also see conflict. Why? Because the whole world's broken. And so I understand that brokenness is a part of this world. But the third assumption I come in with is, but conflict can be constructive. Conflict can be constructive, not destructive. When you and I come into sharp disagreement, we need not destroy each other. That there's a way to enter conflict that's constructive, not destructive, that can build community, not just tear it down. You see it in Proverbs 27, where it says, as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. That's our verse. That's not a cuddly verse. That's not like, you know how iron is. It's always hugging other iron, and they're just loving on each other. It's talking about one piece of iron smashing into the other. That's a violent process. But what process is he talking about? He's talking about building a sword that when you smash iron against another iron to create a sword, you don't take it across the grain to destroy it. You take it with the grain. Why? Because through that friction and conflict, one becomes sharper, one becomes better. There's a way to conflict that's constructive, not destructive. And that's our story. We know that. There's a way to do that. Not only do we understand that it's possible, it's essential for our growth. That God put us together, that by conflicting with one another, we will grow. And you go, what do you mean by that? Well, think about a good coach. What's a good coach? I'll tell you what's not a good coach. One that agrees with everything you do and says you're awesome. That as soon as you jump in the pool, they go, everything you're doing is amazing. There's no mistakes. How can I improve on you, four-year-old? That's not a good coach. What does a good coach do? He disagrees with you all the time. Your stance is off, your foot placement's wrong, you're moving your arm wrong, you're you're moving wrong. That coach is constantly coming against you. And why is he doing that? To make you better. He's doing it with a resolve for your good. That's a good coach. What's a good friend? When you define friendship to somebody, we've all done this. What's a good friend? You say a good friend is someone who will tell me when I got something stuck in my teeth. That's a good friend. Or you say, a good friend is the one who will point out to me when something on me is messed up. They're like, you need to fix that, right? Like a good friend is someone who will do that. Do you hear what you're saying when we say that? We're saying the definition of a friend is someone who will point out my flaws. Does that sound like a recipe for friendship? That sounds like a recipe for insecurity. But we've all said it. Why do we say that? because we understand the reason we appreciate that is because that person points out our flaws from a commitment for our good. They're not doing it to shame us or mock us. They're doing it to help us. So when they see us out in the world with something in our teeth, they go, hey man, you need to fix that. And they will wade into that awkwardness for our good, right? And so Conflict can be constructive, not destructive. It can be good when it's built to build us up, not tear us down. Conflict is essential for community building, and if we do it right, it will deepen community, not destroy it. And so, as we conflict with one another, we need to figure out how do we do it well. And Ephesians 4 gives us the answer. There's a lot going on in Ephesians 4 about stuff we're not going to do. I'm just focusing on what we will do because in Ephesians 4 15, he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head, who's Christ. That right there is what a Christian does. I will speak. I will speak the truth. I will speak it in love and I will do it so that we will grow. That's our sentence. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow. That's how the Christian enters into conflict. And so I wanna look at what does that mean? Well, let's talk about the things we avoid, and then we'll talk about the things we embrace. I will speak. What that means is when I'm hurt, when I'm offended, when someone's bothering me, I'm going to speak. I'm not gonna try to ignore it. I'm not gonna try to pretend there's not an issue. And so many of us do that. No, that doesn't bother me. No, that's no big deal. No, I'm not going to do that. And we tend to distance when something really does bother us. Or I'm not going to see an issue out there and pretend I don't see one. It's interesting. Jean Twenge, who's a psychology professor at San Diego State University, is studying depression in young people. And she says, you know, we found a direct link between depression and people not responding when they get a text or an email from someone that they see as young people put themselves out there socially to someone and get no response back, that anxiety of never hearing what's going on in your heart and mind forces me to try to create what I think is happening, and usually it produces anxiety. So they're measuring increased anxiety and depression in young people. Why? Because of ignoring, being ignored online. Christians not going to do that because they know being ignored hurts. And so for my own comfort, I'm not going to ignore you. I'm going to reach out to you. So we're going to speak. We're not going to ignore each other. We're going to speak the truth. That means when I conflict with somebody, I'm going to speak the truth. I'm not going to minimize it. If they've done something to hurt me, I'm not going to say, it's no big deal. No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it's no big deal. If it's a big deal, I'm going to say it is. But on the other side, I'm not going to maximize it and say, if anyone ever hurts my feelings, it's because you're a bigot and you're a monster and you're evil. I'm not going to go crazy and start shouting them down. I'm not going to assume their motives, but I'm going to speak in love. That means when I come, I'm gonna speak the truth to you, but I'm gonna do it in love, out of a place that wants to see you become better, not try to make you bitter or make me win. And I'm gonna do it in a way that helps us grow, that doesn't destroy us. That's what the Christian does. So you go, well, Ben, what does this look like? Well, let me just give two scenarios, and I'll talk us through it, and then we'll be done. The first scenario is what happens when I'm conflicting with someone about a non-moral issue? Let's say in the business of life, As you're living life with your spouse or coworker, they do something and it hurts your feelings. What do you do? Well, the first thing many of us try to do is try to pretend like it doesn't hurt our feelings, right? We try to say it's no big deal, right? Or sometimes we try to make it a moral issue. We say, man, you did that on purpose because you're an evil person and you're a nightmare. And we do that kind of thing. And you go, no, 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 no. It's not a moral issue sometimes, right? So what do we do? If someone's hurt my feelings... How do I respond to them in a healthy way? Well, let's move through it. Number one is I speak. And so to do that, I have to evaluate first. Is confrontation necessary? Is confrontation necessary? Let's say somebody hurt your feelings. Somebody's been coming to mind for you right now. You go, well, I don't know if I need to talk to them or not. How do you discern whether or not you should speak to someone about the fact that they hurt you? Well, I try to live in the tension of two proverbs. Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 16 says, the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. So I understand that the vexation of the fool is known at once. There's some people that they're just offended by everything, and they're just so thin-skinned, and I don't want to be that person. The prudent person can overlook an insult. I think she was just tired. I don't think you really meant that. I don't think that was directed at me personally. They don't know what I've been through, you know. and I can just kind of blow it off. But on Proverbs 24, 26 It says, whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. There's a way to to love you that, that means speaking an honest word to you, even if it's hard. And so for me, whenever I feel like I've been hurt by someone, I'm always asking, do I ignore an insult? Or do I come to them and speak honestly about what they've done? How do you know which to do? Well, there's simple criteria. You just ask the question, can I overlook it? Can I? And you be honest with yourself. So let's take the example of someone making fun of you. You're with a social group of people and someone tells a joke at your expense. And everybody laughs and you're like, ha, 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 hey. And you don't like that. What do you do? Well, what most of us try to do is instantly say, that doesn't bother me. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. It can't affect me. You can't hurt me. And we try to act tough like that. But then you have to ask yourself, can you overlook it? So what do you do? When that happens to me, someone makes fun of me, hurts my feelings. What I do is I step away from the moment. And I just give it some time. Maybe I'm hungry. I'll go get something to eat. Maybe I'm tired and just needed a nap, and it's, the world's okay. But if I'm rested and fed and healthy, and it's still bothering me, that matters. If I can forget about it, I've forgotten about it. But if I wake up and I'm still thinking about it, that means I probably can't overlook it. If every time I think about that person, I imagine a scenario where we're back in that moment and I say something better that cuts them down and everyone laughs at them and I do too and then we laugh at how small and stupid they are and then they blow up. Then I go, okay, that's a problem. (laughs) If every time I see their face, I wanna just shove it, you know? (laughs) Or if every time I'm interacting with them, that thing they did or said that hurt my feelings comes up, I realize I can't overlook it. I may want to, but I can't. And if I can try to pretend I've overlooked it, but it's just going to create relational distance. So I ask myself, can I overlook it? And if I can't, then I speak. Then I come to them. Donna and I do this. We have a commitment to each other. My wife, we will keep short accounts. And what do you mean by that? What I mean is we will not go through the mistake of saying, well, oh, that's no big deal. That doesn't bother me. That's no big deal. And then six months later, when we get in a big fight, suddenly blow up and go, well, in 2007, you insulted my mother. And since then, and they're like, what? And you bring up stuff that you're like, what, is, what was that? And let me tell you, so much of marriage counseling is that that little problems in years one, two, and three that you were like, it's no big deal, it doesn't matter, it's no big deal, but secretly it bothered you. you're like, I think she does it on purpose. I think she grinds her teeth because she hates me. And then you kind of suddenly get to this place where suddenly it becomes a thing that's wasted years. And now you're paying a guy a lot of money to help you unravel it. And you could have solved it real quick back then. So Donna and I, if something goes down that hurts my feelings, I walk away, I do something else. If a couple hours later, it's still bothering me, I realize I can't let it go. And so I walk up. Hey, babe, yeah. you know when we were hanging out with our friends and you were making a joke about how I have a big head? Yeah. Um, that that kind of hurt my feelings. That made me feel like you were trying to like cut me down to look bigger in their eyes, and it felt like you were trying to disrespect me. Well, I wasn't trying to disrespect me. Were you trying to make me feel bad? No, I don't want you to feel bad. So you don't want me to feel bad? Of course I don't. I'm sorry, that. I, I thought we were all having fun. Well, it kind of hurt. Well, then I'll never do it again. Okay, thanks. All right, and we saved a lot of money and a lot of time. It's done, right? And so I ask the question, can I overlook it? And if I'm honest with myself and I can't, then I speak, right? And when I speak, I speak the truth. And you go, what do you mean by the truth? Well, you focus on the things you can know, and there's only two. You can know their specific behaviors, and you can know your emotional response. That's it. What you can't know are their motives. And that's where so many people's conflicts are unproductive, as we try to assume that motive. You're trying to make me look stupid. You're trying to make me say this. It's because you hate that. What are you talking about? And we assume motives that's not theirs, and that becomes a non-constructive conversation, right? And so when I'm confronting somebody, I address specific behaviors, not generalities. You know, why do you suck so much lately? Uh, Well, I'll try to do better. Like, that doesn't help someone. And I'll have people that say Christians come to them and say, hey, you just have a spirit of pride, and you're like, well, what? How, How do you fix that? But if you can come to me and say, when you say that, this is how it sounds to me. When you did that to that person, to me it read as disrespectful. What were you thinking? And I don't assume their motives. I address specific behaviors and say how it made me feel. That's a constructive way to move forward, right? Specifics, not general. And I avoid assuming their motive. The closest I ever got to a fist fight in a public place in college was I remember there was a guy Uh, that I lived with and we were there at the rec center all these people around and this girl came up talked to the two of us for a few minutes and left and I remember as, as soon as that was over he looked at me and he was like just got upset at me started yelling at me and saying like you were trying to make me look bad in front of that girl and I was like I wasn't trying to do anything He's like, you're always trying to make me look stupid and make you look better. I'm like, I'm always trying to make you look stupid? Like, that's a goal of mine? He's like, yeah, you're always trying to act like you're so awesome, and then I'm not. You're trying to make yourself look better in front of these girls. And you know what? I'm trying to get something. I'm like, what do you? I don't even know who that was. I don't care. That's not what was on my mind. But he just kept coming at me with my motive, my motive, my motive. And he was ascribing to me motives I've never had in my life. And I realized now what he was doing was projecting all his insecurities on me. But for me, it was just offensive. Don't assume that I feel that way. And I just got madder and madder. And now finally, I was like, I got to walk away because I'm going to start hitting him. And I was the chaplain of an organization. And I was like, I just don't think it would go well if right in the middle of all these students, I'm just like wailing on this guy. It probably hurt the ministry. So I was like, I got to get out of here, right? But it was frustrating, right? And so don't do that. If someone hurts you, say, when you said that, when you did that, this is what I thought. This is how it made me feel. And you give them the benefit of the doubt of what might have been going through their mind. And so I speak the truth. And I speak the truth in love, in a loving way. What does that look like? Well, I'll tell you a couple basic things is choose the proper time. Don't wait too long. Don't come up to them and say, hey, you remember in the mid-90s when you said that thing? Like, really? No, I don't remember. Keep keep the timetable short. Don't pick a time that's insensitive to them. I remember I had a roommate uh, back in the day that was great about coming to you if something was bothering him emotionally. He was terrible at picking the time. So I would be studying for a test that was like in two hours, and he would just kind of barge into my room, sit down, and be like, hey, man, you remember the other day when you said this? Well, I thought this. And I'm like, dude, this is not the right time. Well, we need to get this done, so I need to talk about this in the community. And I'm like, okay, dude, you know, that was a misunderstanding. This is becoming hatred. Like I was like, okay, I understand why well, you were hurt there. Now it's hate because I'm super mad because I got a test coming up, and you need to get out of my face, right? And we just realized we picked a time that was bad." And so maybe the first thing when he walks in the door from work and you're like, well, you didn't do this, that might not be the best time. Maybe if you've left her to take care of the kids for days on end and you're like, you know what you're not good at? That's probably not the best time. (laughs) For Donna and I, we've learned we need to come to say and say, hey, I need to talk to you about something. Can you tell me when would be a good moment? And she does that because she knows that kind of helps me prepare so I don't feel blindsided, right? And uh, we try to pick a time and a place. That's constructive, not humiliating. Don't confront them in the middle of Denny's or something in front of all these people. (laughs) Now it's the time, you know. (laughs) Oof. And then I speak from the heart. That's how you love them. I come from the vulnerability of speaking from the heart. As a leader of Breakaway, we would always encourage our students. We had student leaders that were constantly having to confront other students. And we said, as you confront them of where they're not holding up their responsibilities as volunteers, we want you to use the confrontation sandwich, that's what we called it. A compliment, confrontation, and a compliment, right? Uh, We also called it the punch and stroke method, right? That we would say, I just love that you're a part of my team. Stop showing up late, but you are such a valued member of this community, right? (laughs) And that kind of deal. And we're like, don't literally punch them or stroke them. No, it's weird. But what we're saying is when you confront them about something hard, don't combine it with some shallow, meaningless compliment. Dig deep and say why you care about this relationship at all hey, I don't want to have this conversation. It's awkward for me, but I'm doing it because I want us to have no barriers between us. And I feel like there's an issue here. Share your heart. That vulnerability takes the sword out of people's hands. And so we come and we do it in a loving way, speaking our heart for reconciliation, not retaliation. And we do it with the goal that we'll both grow. I speak the truth and love so that we grow. I'm not looking to win against you. I'm learning to win with you. So Donna and I, early in our marriage, we realized whenever we came into conflict, we decided you are never the problem and I'm never the problem. You and I are one. And we would even sit on the same side of the table to be like, we're in this together and we will together deal with the problem, no matter what the problem is. But I remember early on when we figured this out, I mean, it was the first holidays we ever had. We went to my family's house and the way my family works is... Uh, they are all about you communicate love with quantity time, you know? So if we go visit them, it's going to be four days or so, right? And uh, even when it's time to leave, you got to tell them like in a day in advance, well, I better get going because you know that's going to initiate a, a, a social experience where you move through every ho- room of the house and they keep talking to you and you keep talking and as you get to the car, they walk out there with you. As you get in the car, they hold on to the window and then grandpa gets his stuff out, checks all the tires and even as you back up, they're still kind of holding on to the wi- and that's just how it goes with my family and so I remember the first time Donna entered into the mix three hours into being at grandma's house she's making plans for that night and I got super offended I was like hey we just got here and I know they're not your family or whatever but these people mean a lot to me and I got really offended by that and she was surprised I was offended i was surprised she's surprised like, what's the matter with you and we just couldn't figure that out and a year later we did Thanksgiving at her grandma's house. And we showed up at noon and had lunch. And at two, her grandma stood up and went, Well, thanks for coming, everybody. I'm like, wait, wait, what? What? She kind of ushered everyone out. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? And we had to debrief it. I'm driving, I'm like, what's wrong with your grandma? Y'all got some family issues? Y'all hate each other? Like, no, it's just Thanksgiving is a meal. When the meal's done, we're done. I'm like, that is so crazy. And we realized it's not a moral issue. You don't hate my family. I don't hate your family. We're not not the issue. So let's get together and pull out the issue, even if the issue is one of our emotions. Well, My emotions are really angry right now. I I think I'm angry. Really? Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Why am I angry? I don't know. And we start to try to solve the issue together. And when we do it together, it makes it fun. It's like solving a puzzle. But we're doing it out of a commitment to reconciliation, not retaliation. You're not the problem and I'm gonna beat you. You and I are in this together. Let's solve the issue that's dividing us. And so I speak the truth to love in love so that we'll grow. That's how we communicate. And so the last scenario you go, well, what about when I'm confronting someone who has sin in their life? It is a moral issue. And, and this is a narrow focus. I'm talking about a believer in Jesus Christ who sees another believer in Jesus Christ that is participating in activities that are inconsistent with their allegiance to Jesus. What do you do in that moment? You speak, you speak. And yet I hear so many Christians say, well, I can't do that, I'll just pray for them, I don't wanna bother, I don't want them to think I'm judgmental, I don't wanna come off like I'm all judging them, so I'm just gonna tell like seven or eight of my friends and we'll all pray for them, you know? (laughs) Leviticus 19 says, do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in his guilt. Did you hear what he just said there? If you refuse to rebuke your neighbor frankly, it's it's not because you love them so much. It's because you hate them. If I really love somebody, I hate the sin in their life that's hurting them. So if you say, well, I'm not going to confront them about that. I don't want to come off as judgmental. I don't want them to think I'm rude. I don't want them to think I'm mean. Who are you loving in that moment? You. I'm okay for them to take part of activities that are not helpful in their walk with God so I can save the fact that they might think less of me. You don't love them. Leviticus says you hate them. You just love you more. The Christian knows that Jesus came to us while we were enemies because he loved us. And he confronted our sin because he loved us because you won't get a cure if you don't know you're sick. And so the Christian, when they see a buddy walking in sin, they come to them and they risk the relationship in the name of love. So we speak, right? Matthew 18, 15 says, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained a brother. So you keep the circle small. You don't go tell a million people. If you see something in a brother's life, you go to them, just the two of them. Why? So, so you don't unnecessarily humiliate them. But you come to somebody and say, hey, man, I need to talk to you about something. I don't really want to do this, but I feel like I'm doing this because I love you and, and, uh, and this matters to me. I see these things in your life and... I just don't know how they reconcile with your commitment to Jesus. So can you help me understand, am I missing something? Can you help me see what's happening here? And you come to them and you, you confront them in love. And if they repent, you want a brother over, it's done. What happens if they blow you off? Jesus says, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I've had to do this, where I've seen someone engaged in activity that's destructive to them, addictive behavior that is not healthy, and I've come to them one-on-one, and they sort of graciously blew me off, and I've had to bring a friend. And I brought another guy into the mix, and I did that knowing that he wasn't gonna like that at all, and that might have really damaged his willingness to talk to me in the next few minutes. But why did I call his friend and sit him down? It helped him see the gravity of more than one person sees this and sees it's not good and we're coming out of our mutual love for you saying this activity has to stop, And it helped me having a witness of someone saying, it's not just the two of us disagreeing about an issue. There's real sin in your life and he came to you out of love and so I bring more people to help you see this is a problem and you need to get out of it. If they blow you off again, it says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. You go to a religious authority in their life. If they claim to be a Christian, you go to the spiritual authority in their life, a Bible study leader, a pastor at their church, or y'all's church if you're here together, and you say, hey, I need help with this issue in their life. My husband's a part of some things. My wife's a part of some things. My brother is into some stuff, and I know he goes to this church, and we need help. I've had to do this. And you do it because you're trying to save somebody, not destroy them. And if they blow you off then, it says you treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. You go, what does that mean? Does that mean shun them? No. It means if they refuse that, then you stop working off the assumption that they truly have an allegiance to Jesus. I remember confronting a friend about his sexual behavior and came to him and in tears about it and and just said, uh, looked at the Bible verses together and say, how do you reconcile an allegiance to Jesus with this activity? Like, what do you think these verses mean, man? And he said, hey, that may work for you, but that doesn't work for me. And I said, we're talking about the word of God. It's not like an option here. Like, do you think I'm misreading that or are we right on that? And he's like, well, I'm just not, that doesn't work for me. And so I walked out of there and go, I, I don't know what to say at that moment. But what I did is I didn't burn down the relationship. But what I did is I didn't assume anymore that he really knew He really knew him, and so I wanna live my life in a way that exemplifies the beauties of having an allegiance to Jesus Christ. And when I get an opportunity to speak to you about him, I wanna invite you to come and know him like I do. I don't sever the relationship, but I speak, and I speak the truth in love with the hopes that they'll grow, and I trust God with the results of it. And one little caveat I wanna say before we close is that this is about day-to-day normal relationships. And some of you might be in abusive situations where you've tried to go to someone one-on-one and it ends with violence, physical, verbal. I want to tell you something. It is not necessary or a command for you to keep entering into that experience alone where you or your kids are being damaged. If there's an issue and they are not repenting or reconciling, you bring more people around the relationship. That's not betrayal. That's health. It's health for you. It's health for the kids. Uh, It's the right decision. And you let the church come around you for the sake of reconciliation and growth. But it's fascinating. Jesus gave us these verses in Matthew 18. And the very next section, he said, now let's talk about forgiveness because we're going to hurt each other and we need to forgive. And Peter says, how many times? Seven times and then you're done? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. You keep forgiving. And some of you go, what if I don't want to anymore? What if that party, those group, those people, they always and they never and I don't want to deal with them anymore. Well, Jesus tells a story. He tells a story about a servant who racked up debt against his master somewhere to the tune of like a billion dollars. It's a ridiculous number in a story where you're like, how does the math on that even work? And he says, and that servant comes in and his life is over. And the master forgives him his debt. And then Jesus says, how crazy is it for someone who's been forgiven that massive debt to then go and beat his fellow servant and imprison him because of a small debt of a few months' wage? That's the perspective the Christian comes to the world with. I was an enemy of God, and Jesus came for me. And while I was his enemy, Christ died for me. God gave up all to take me an enemy and make me into a friend. That is so marvelous, I will not go to the person of that other political party or that other social group or who's across the line of a conflict in my family and so instantly and immediately brush them aside and refuse to forgive them. If God in Christ reconciled me to himself, he has given me the power and the resource to reconcile with others, that I will use my voice and my influence to speak the truth in love so that our community will grow. Let me pray for us. Well Lord, I just pray for any in here who maybe thought religion was be a good person. They would hear now that the story of the gospel is that while we were God's enemies, we didn't have to work our way back into his presence. Christ came running for us. That's what his death was about. It was to bury the hostility between us and God, to make us friends. So no matter what you've done, no matter how far gone you think you are, Jesus loves the sinner and any who come to repent are welcome in. And Maybe that's you today and we welcome you. And You come talk to one of us about what God's doing in your heart and in your life. And then God, I pray as we enter into relationships in an increasingly hostile culture, the world has to see a different way. And we are the ones who've been given the divine power and example of Jesus Christ, laying down his life to make enemies into friends. I pray as we enter into this culture in this day, we would lay down our arms and love. We'd be quicker to pray for a people than tweet about them. We'd be quicker to talk to someone who's hurt us than talk about them. I pray we would have the humility to not assume people's motives, but the courage to come and talk to somebody and say, hey, this hurt, and I care enough about this relationship to see it reconciled and resolved. God, I pray we would be a model of healthy communication to the world because it needs it right now, and the tools and the grace are available for the person who is in Christ Jesus. May that be the way we treat one another because in this increasingly hostile day, it will leap out as different And it will show the world how beautiful you truly are, King Jesus. Make us ministers of reconciliation for your glory and for our country's good. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at Faith Bridge by talking with the teacher of the day. Welcome to Postscript. I'm Ann Riley, Grow Group and Discipleship Director, and I'm here with Bible teacher Ben Stewart. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. Okay, so great message today. Thanks. Definitely a hot topic. <laughs> okay. Definitely has a lot of intricacies as you apply this to your life and your situation and what's happening in yours. And so we had a lot of questions. Okay. <laughs> um, we're A lot of questions. So in order yeah. for Postscript not to be hours long. Right. We're going to kind of bring some of those questions in together. Okay. Um, a lot of the questions that we got were around very specific situations. Um, one of them, for example, being how do you decide if you address a parent of a child who hurts your child? Yeah. Or how do I handle this specific situation that's happening in my life? What would you say about those?
1: Right. Yeah, um, it is difficult to answer like one like that. How old's the kid? Do you know the parents? In what mm-hmm. scenario? Like the council would vary based on some more information. And so that's where um, you know, I would say with issues like that, and I, I maybe should have said this caveat in the sermon, is saying you want to keep the circle small in confrontation, but it's not gossip to seek wisdom. And so all wisdom's not housed in your friend that's maybe the same age as you, you know, but Maybe you can go to a pastor or someone that you know is is a pretty wise person and say, hey, here's the situation I'm dealing with and let them journey with you through the specifics because there would be scenarios where I would say, yeah, you need to talk to those parents. Or there would be scenarios where I would say, given the kid's age or the structure where those kids are meeting, you need to go in this direction. So um, for a lot of these questions, I would say um, you need to ask the hard question of do I have wise Christian counsel in my life? Mm And if I don't, what do I need to do to get it, so I could sit with that person who could know all the nuance, and and then help me in life? I, I've done that over the last several years. I've developed relationships with people like Ken, who are mm-hmm. older than me, and I can come to him and go, "There's no book that's going to help me navigate this very specific issue. I need you to journey in with me." And so in community. Exactly. So so. That feels like a step back, but it's a step back to move forward, of of asking yourself, am I in community where I have access to wise voices in my life?
0: That's good. Um, And so another area where a lot of questions came around was in the spousal relationship. Mm -hmm. So as a believer, um, maybe my husband's not a believer. Or if he is, he he hasn't journeyed or matured as, as far as me. And so when I speak the truth in love or when I'm presenting things... I'm not getting the equal type of response or interaction um, based on where they are. How, how, do, how does one navigate that in their marriage?
1: Yeah, it's tricky. And, you know, that's a whole different sermon. Paul will speak to the Corinthians about that. What happens if you become a believer and your spouse isn't? And, you know, his advice to them was as, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. Uh, and do all that you can to preserve the relationship because you are a witness to Jesus in that home. And uh, that creates, again, a lot of scenarios of what do I do exactly? I I think in a very general sense, the Christian in a non-Christian environment, and this is spouse or child or parent, is you want to model Christian love and service as much as you can. Go as far as you can to communicate to the other person, I respect you and I love you. And ways to communicate that, I've found, is to, I want to celebrate everything in your life I can celebrate, you know, so if, if I'm only coming to you with the things that I dislike that you do or wish were different, and someone feels nagged or picked on, it's going to create distance, but if I can come to you and routinely, regularly do things for you, I know that speak value or love to you around the home, if I can sincerely compliment in you the things I really deeply appreciate and love about you. Even if I have to dig deep to find them, that creates an atmosphere where confrontation might be received better. Um, but uh, that's maybe the first big piece of advice I would give. And if you're talking about a Christian, non-Christian, um, you do have grounds relationally to say, I think for the good of our marriage, I would like this or that, and, and again, realizing you may hit limits where they may not want to. Mm-hmm. and Depending on what the issue is, it may be something you agree to disagree for a season, or if it's something much more dramatic with implications financially or socially for your kids, maybe you need to start pulling in other voices. But again, that, you start getting into some so specifics specific. where you need some help. Yeah. Um, That's
0: yeah. good. Um, so one of the questions that came around is, how do you know when you're when you're trying to reconcile with someone and you're and you're doing what we're talking about today, moving towards them and speaking to them, how do you know when a relationship can't be reconciled or you've done all that you can do? Yeah. Is do you ever reach a point with that in relationships?
1: Yes, because you know, and there's great books on that boundaries by Townsend is a great one, you know, of going you have to realize there's there is a limit of what I can do and what you can do. A relationship takes two people. And that's why I think, you know, the Bible so wise when it says, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. What's the assumption there? There will be limits. Mm. Maybe you're doing the things you can do to seek peace with someone and they don't want to, you know, you are trying to be uh, loving, attentive, calm when you voice concerns and they rage and are physically abusive. Well, at that point for the safety of the kids, you may, you may need to step away. Praying for reconciliation, praying for repentance in their life, leaving yourself open to forgive them, but, but um, that doesn't mean I continually put myself in jeopardy. And, and again, that's where you get to, and you really need some specific counsel on that. But the general answer is, yeah, there, are, there may come moments in any relationship, even a friendship, where you go, I've told them, I've apologized for all I know I did wrong. I've told them I'm opening to a healthy communication with you about resolution, but if they're not open, you can't do anything. You really can't, it takes two people. And so you have to really go, what's as far as I can go, let me go there. And then I may get in situations where Jesus did, where you just have to let the person walk away. And it's sad, but you let them walk away.
0: Um, One of the questions that came around, I think um, hits a lot of what we feel as believers. We recognize sin in ourselves. we recognize sin in a friend or someone else. Um, How do we address sin in someone else's life without seeming like a hypocrite? Because we know we don't have it all together either. We're coming from a sinful standpoint. How do we do that without being hypocritical?
1: Yeah, well, I think one of the, and honestly, I think it's, it's a tactic of the enemy is for us to say, how could you confront that person? You have this issue. And you go, then we both won't say anything. You go, okay, so then both stay in ways of living that aren't productive or healthy for you. How is that glorifying to Jesus? You know, when when Jesus confronted that issue, he said, don't try to get the splinter out of a brother's eye when you got a board in yours. But he didn't go. So see what I'm saying? And stop there. He goes, get the board out of your eye and then go help them. So he kept going, going like, don't just go, well, i got a board. You go, yeah, get it out and then go help them. And so... You do all you can do to fight sin in your own life. And then if you see someone, you can say, hey, look, you can tell them, I know I'm not perfect. I know I have these issues. And I know in our relationship I've done some things that aren't healthy and good. I've tried my best to apologize for them. Here's an issue I see in your life that concerns me. And I'm not telling you to try to win anything. This isn't a win for me. This is me concerned about you. and Because I love you, I'm addressing this issue in your life. And if you come from a humble place of... I'm putting my heart out there and saying, this is an awkward conversation for me. The only reason I'm saying it is because I love you and I want what's best for you. They might reject you, but you've made it harder, you know, Mm -hmm. because you've come in with humility. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's what I would say, is fight sin in your own life and then come to them from a humble place and be courageous enough to speak, but do it from a humble place.
0: So what if I tried this before and it went bad? So the other person got aggressive, and then I responded aggressively, and I let my emotions get out of control, and with all the good intentions that I had going in were shot.
1: Went sideways. Went sideways.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, how do I then recover from or try again?
1: Yeah. Well, I I sympathize with whoever asked because I've done that, and there have been relationships early in my faith. And it happens to a lot of people when you come to Christ. You get real like, this is the right way. This is the truth. This is it. Everyone should know this. What's the matter with you? And you're like, uh, I had relationships where we both came in like freight trains. We're like, boom, and, and bounced back. And I realized later, yes, this behavior of theirs was wrong. My way of addressing it was wrong. And so I've had to come back to people that were still doing things that were wrong and say, hey, I want you to know. The way I treated you was inappropriate. And I don't need to wait for you to deal with this issue for me to own mine. Um, uh, I, I shouldn't have talked to you that way, and I'm sorry. And leave it. And don't say, and now you need to say sorry back because of the four things you just did. You know, you just come in and say, as far as it depends on Owning me. Owning your part. Yeah, I made a mistake, um, and I'm sorry. And then uh, say, i I feel like we're not done talking about that issue. I'd like to come back around it, but I think we need to find a way to do it that's more constructive. And again, if you've come to them alone and the two of you can't get there, you bring, can we get someone else in this conversation to help us? You get, bring up a witness. Maybe it's a counselor, if it's your marriage. Maybe it's someone at the church. Um, you know maybe it's another friend if you're dealing with a friend issue. But you follow Matthew 18.
0: Good. Um, last question. Okay. Um, actually, it's two questions, but I'm going to combine them into right. one.
1: Yeah, let's go. Um,
0: Christians in the workplace. We had questions <clears throat> come in around there. Um, yeah. Questions about my boss is a Christian. Um, how do I address my boss on maybe something that I'm seeing if it could possibly jeopardize my work? And in yeah. the same respect, you know, I'm working with patients or I'm working with customers. Um, Or I'm working with people where I see issues, but I'm not sure what our relationship should look like at work professionally.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would say um, there are inherent risks in those. And so I think you don't want to jump on, you know, the prudent man overlooks an insult. So maybe your boss is short with people who are rude one day. You go, I don't know what they're going through at home. I'm going to pray for them, and I'm going to model healthy relational dynamics as far as I can in this office I will be like Jesus in this place and so I wouldn't jump at the slightest offense but if you're seeing a pattern in their life it is scary but you get a lot of stories biblically of Christians like Daniel that are going to say well I will speak the truth and if I die I die and you've got a Daniel, an Esther, a Nehemiah, you have people that were willing to come to the person in power and say, this is an issue. And were they always at risk? Yes, they were. Did it stop them? No, it did not. And I had a friend do this recently, and it was it really scared him. He's like, I like my job. I like, I like what I'm doing. It would be bad if this went down. But I watched it long enough to go, this is a pattern I see in, in his life. And he came to him, and did it in a gracious way, told him all the things he loves about him, told him all that he loves about working there, Um, and said, I want to bring something up, and it's because of my concern for you, and he did it in a way, he's like, uh, it went great, he said, it brought us closer together, it was solid, it was good, and things are better than ever, Mm -hmm. his life's better, our relationship's better, everything's better, and you're like, that's awesome, good for you, man, I've had other people get fired, and you know what, you, you go and take, have the peace in your heart of knowing it's God who takes care of you, not that person. You know? And if they throw you in the furnace, you know Christ is standing there alongside you. And I know that's easy for me to say, it may sound like it's easy for me to say, but I understand that. Th- these are the risks we take. And this is, that's where we, we come against the culture with something very different. We have to be willing to do that. Now, with clients, again, I don't know. Because, again, what's the nature of the relationship? If you see them once, do you have the relational capital to do so? I I don't know. The the dynamics are so varied, it's hard for me to say. And in a one-shot moment with someone, you usually can't get a read. uh, Is this a thing where I just prudently overlook it? Mm -hmm. Or is this a pattern that I see that I need to address out of love for them? That's maybe the most helpful general advice I can give.
0: That's good. That's good. Um, Both weeks, I love how uh, as we talked about unity and diversity and being in community with people, um, inevitably that brings conflict. So I love how you challenged us to do that, but then also gave us some very real practical outworkings of how to make that work. I hope so. Uh, it was, was, <laughs> was really good. <laughs> it was yeah. really good. I think uh, about our communities here and our small groups and just being able to relate to people and engage in a way that's not emotional, um, but it's caring for each other. So I thank you for that. Yeah, we, we loved having you here. Oh, thanks. It was yes. Fun. So thank you for joining us. And thank you for joining us here for Postscript. We'll see you back here next week. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org
1: postscript.